And I believe every great football coach does this. I believe Bill Belichick never lets guys get comfortable when they're winning. And I would tell you that most people do it exactly the other way. When times are tough, they inject tension. And when times are good, they love you. Times are good, they love you, doesn't motivate you. I have a, a, one last thought. It's on inspiration. I think it's offered the most when it's needed the least. It's offered the least when it's needed the most. When you're winning, if nobody calls you, that's crummy, but everybody's, oh, great job, great job. That's not inspiration. When you're hurting, when you're off of goal, something's wrong. Maybe you've got health problems. Maybe your family's got health problems. That's when you need someone to care enough to say, I got you, I'm with you. That's inspiration. Hi, I'm Jubin, go-to-market partner at Kleiner Perkins, and this is GTMG, a show that interviews world-class revenue and go-to-market leaders to explore how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build incredible companies. Speaking of world-class companies, there are more incredible startups in the Kleiner portfolio than I've ever seen. When I was operating, I would have begged to be in some of these companies. If you're listening, and we don't do sponsorships on this show, so I figured I'd use this opportunity. If you're listening and you are inspired by the stories of my guests and you want to find the next incredible ride for you, reach out to me. Let's find an amazing job in the Kleiner portfolio. Now let's get to the episode. Tom, I appreciate this. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So I get all of these things started the exact same way, which is that I read my guests' backgrounds back to them. It generally ends up being much more efficient. But what also ends up happening in that process is I screw it up almost every time. <laughs> so when I do screw it up, you let me know. I won't take offense to it. Julian, and we'll use, I'm that, with you. And we'll use that as our Let's trampoline. All right. You got your BS in econ from the University of Notre Dame. Notre Dame or Notre Dame? How do you say it? What's up? Notre Dame. Notre Dame. Notre Dame's a cathedral in Paris. Right. Notre makes, Dame's a school. That makes a lot of sense. Then you joined, well, a bunch of stuff happened for about 20 years. And then you joined a company called NetApp. At the time, NetApp was doing about 600,000 of revenue. That's correct. There was sub 50 employees, if I'm not mistaken. I was employee 32. 32. There was only two sales reps on the team. Mm -hmm. And that was in 1994. You joined as the VP of sales. That's right. May 1994. May 1994. You spent about six-ish years as the VP of sales. Then you became the president in 2000. You spent nine years as the president. Then you became the vice chairman for about 10 years from 2009 to 2019. That's correct. Okay. Along the way, you picked up a few board seats. I'm not going to go through all of them, but most prominently, Kleiner Company. You were on the board of UiPath as a board director for the last couple of years, recently stepped down. You're currently active on the board of Vast Data and Veronis and you were on the board of Service Source and NetScreen and blah, blah, blah. Right? How'd I do there? Very fortunate. Yes. Okay. You hit it. Good. And then I got to ask you, what was your first ever job? The first time someone paid you to do anything? I was an usher in a movie theater. And the funniest part of that was it was on Long Island. And it was the kind that ran the same movie over and over and over again. So the first movie was Bonnie and Clyde. And it drove me so crazy because they made you stay in the theater that I started telling people the ending, <laughs> which was not popular with the guy running the theater, but at least kept me amused. I, I, they die here. They're, they're about to get shot. <laughs> and it, what the killer was when they did the sound of music. If I hear the hills are alive again, I'm going to die. Oh. You know, every day. Oh, my God. So that was my first job. And the second was mowing lawns. I volunteered for the cemetery duty. 
because nobody else wants to mow a cemetery. But I figured that way I'm alone. I'm, I can relax, listen to my music, <laughs> mow. So that was my first two jobs. Where was that? Colmack, Long Island. Colmack, Long Island. I'd love to just maybe kick things off with your family. Grew up in Long Island, immigrant parents. Mom was from Cuba. Dad was Irish. No, so my father's father yeah. was from Cuba. Oh, good. Father's mother was from Ireland. Uh-huh. My mother's parents were both off the boat from Czechoslovakia. So it was during the 20s, 1920s, all coming in. And then the Depression hit in 1929. So, you know, my dad and mother grew up in the Depression. Having Spanish or Cuban and Irish parents, nobody was on your side type thing. You know, it's not like today you might be accepted. And right after Pearl Harbor, he turned 16 on February 13th, and he enlisted. His mother had signed it because she didn't think he'd take him. He lost his finger in a printing press accident. So he's already working in a newspaper at 14, and it took his finger off his uh, ring finger on his left hand. But he went into the service four years, served in the Pacific, and he was champion of the armed services in two weight classes as a boxer at 18. The reason that's interesting, if you think about it, everybody was in the war. He was the only Navy guy not being a Marine that was a champion, and he did it in two weight classes. The point of that is he grew up and had to defend himself. Wow. He became really good at it. I was literally just watching Cinderella Man. and um, I love that movie. It's amazing. Oh, yeah. And hearing you say that, I guess living through that period, what do you think coming out the other end, what kind of scar tissue do you think that gives you as a parent? Well, the grandparents, who were the adults at the time, clearly never felt safe with their money, right? It could go away at any minute. They lived their whole life like that because it had. They didn't have anything, but they saw other people who lost everything. So, you know, my grandparents, they just were very, very careful with their money. My parents were more products of World War II, coming home from the war. So he comes home at 20, got married within a year to my mother. They were dating before he left. But young people, I think he got married at 22. But you come home from the war they got the veterans GI bill to get his first home. That's how he ended up moving out on Long Island. We actually, I grew up in New York city until I was six. And then my brother was eight. And then my, we were going to have a sister and we only had a one bedroom cold water flat. So we had no room for anybody. My, my brother and I slept on a couch. My parents had the one bedroom and that was it. So we moved in with my grandmother for a year. So my dad could save money. And then he got a job where he could still commute. He went to the furthest you could go on Long Island, which was 52 miles, and still get to the city by train to go to work. So every day, two hours each way, he's commuting so that his kids could have a place to live. That's incredible. You started a scholarship program at Notre Dame. I did. In 1994, in yeah. your father's honor. Actually. Go ahead. It was my mother had just passed away. Oh, wow. In your mother's honor. Well, yeah, my mother passed Thanksgiving. Uh, that's the first year I'm at NetApp. And uh, my roommate at Notre Dame had endowed a scholarship in his father's name. And his, he, his father was a construction foreman, but he wanted to do something to honor his dad. He took a loan to do it, but I never forgot that. So what, you're right, it was to honor my dad. But the impetus was my mother passing away because, as you know, a lot of times if one person passes, the spouse mm -hmm. is in a dangerous spot because he feels lost, he or she. 
And we had never thought mm -hmm. that my mother would pass first. She died at 67 of a heart attack and had no health problems prior. So we always thought my dad would die first. You know how you mentally prepare for something? Yep. And so I called Notre Dame and I said, I'd like to endow a perpetual four-year scholarship in my father's name to help him in that situation. And they, they get incoming call, right? They're like, great. And I said, well, not so fast. There's three conditions. And they're like, they don't want to hear conditions, but if you're in sales, Jubin, like you and I are, you, you want to hear what those conditions are Absolutely. before you comment. Absolutely. So I go, what are they? Number one, I said, I don't care what race they are, ethnicity or anything else. All I want to know is it's the perfect kid for Notre Dame by your standard. And you're going to tell them that someone they never met is going to pay for their education. They're going, okay, what's number two? I said, number two is it has to be the kid's dream. Because if you call them and say, hey, good news, you got a scholarship to Notre Dame, they say, that's very interesting, but I'm going to, I'll consider it with my other, you blew it. And this isn't about Notre Dame. Whatever school you think is a cool school, you support for whatever reason you do, there are kids dreaming to go there. Let's give that kid the scholarship, not some kid that might take it as, well, that's nice. And they go, what's number three? Because this is going pretty well. And I said, number three, they have to write my father a letter every semester. I want a relationship with my dad. And so six years later, when I endowed the business school in 2000, I brought my dad with me to the ceremony. It was going to start with him meeting those six kids on scholarship at that moment. And he got all nervous as we were walking over because there were pictures of me around the campus. And he said, man, I don't know. They're going to want to see you. And he, he also had claustrophobia late in life. So he was very concerned about being around a lot of people. But I said to him, look, we'll go in there and if this isn't cool, we'll leave. And he walked in and those kids completely ignored me. They go, hi, oh, nice, great. They went right to him. They'd been writing to him all along. When he passed away, he was in hospice. The only thing in that room that they allowed, besides white walls and a photo of him in the Notre Dame Business School sweatshirt for those letters, thumbed over a million times. The moment he died, that's what he wanted next to him. That's unbelievable. Yeah. It was, sometimes you do the right thing at the right time, and you don't even know exactly what the future holds, but I always look back and thank God I did that. And the start of this was in 94, right yeah. when you were joining NetApp. I joined in May, and she passed away in November. And at that point in your career, do you feel like, were you already in a position no, to start. I wasn't, I wasn't wealthy. I was well off, but not wealthy. My roommate took out a loan to do it. Right. So, you know, when you go to do something like that, you give them an amount of money that's not quite as large as you think, because they're going to invest it over 10, 20 years. And that's, so it's lower than you think. And the school takes advantage of that and they invest that money and they, somebody has a scholarship. So, you know, we did one there. I've done multiple since. My wife, Ty, and I did one a couple of years ago again. It's just a great thing to do, I, I believe. But anyway, that particular one meant so much to me because of the situation. I also, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't mean to rewrite history here, but I also heard that in 2000, when you did the same for the business school, mm -hmm. you put half your net worth to that donation. Yeah, it was a lot of it, that's for sure. Because I tell people sometimes if they ask me about it, it wasn't like Bill Gates giving away a small little piece. You know, I, I love the fact they do it. I love what Bill Gates does. I love what the Bezos is doing. I just felt 
that longer term, I felt very privileged and blessed to be where I was at already. And I wanted to do something that would leave a mark on a lot of people, not because of my name, because I think it's the right thing to do. If you're going to give to anything, healthcare is a great thing. A lot of people give to hospitals and stuff, but give back education to people who might not be able to afford it. So they use that money very, you know, I've had people say to me at Notre Dame, man, you built a beautiful building. The building was already there. They ended up building out a floor on the bottom and doing some great things with it. But that's not what the money went. All went to people. Mm. So either scholarships for people who couldn't afford to go to school, for professors to give them an uptick to move to South Bend. That maybe they're, they're living in Connecticut at Yale. We got people from all over to make that move. Or from corporate America, the guy ran, uh, Leo Burke ran corporate training for Motorola. They hired him to do all the executive training. He couldn't have afforded that move from Illinois to South Bend and a pay cut. So they upgraded that. They opened six remote campuses, I believe, all over the world. Wow. So they used it intelligently. Quick story. You know, they never evaluated undergraduate business schools till 2006. Up till then, everyone looked at MBA type things and rankings. The MBA program was ranked, I think, 50th, and now it's ranked in the high 20s. So it takes a long time to move that one along. Mm -hmm. But they're doing well. But the undergraduate program in Business Week it was the first one to do it in 2006. Because a lot of kids now going to school said, I got to get a job when I get out. Prior to that, you could study almost anything, but a lot of people wanted to get a business background. And the first year they did their study, Notre Dame finished third. The Mendoza School of Business finished third. Second year was seventh. And then they were first six times in a row. Top undergraduate business school in America. So when I first gave the donation, Carolyn Wu was the dean. She was there quite a long time. Then she went on to be the head of Catholic Relief Worldwide. So any disaster in the world, she's CEO of that. But I said to her, what are you going to do to make this unique to Notre Dame? And she said, we are going to focus on ethical leadership. Notre Dame is known to turn out kids that have good backgrounds, good ethics, hardworking. We're going to focus on ethical leadership. And then WorldCom happened and uh, right. Enron happened. And people started to say, hey, I want to be in a company that I know is going to not let me down. And the business school itself has focused that to bring out the good in business is the, is the saying of the business school. How do we so make cool. business do something good for the planet? And that really was what drove me to do it. So it, it's like, you guys are doing exactly what I hope would happen. That's amazing. And it's, it's patterned throughout your entire career. I got to tell you, as I was doing my research for this, something very weird happened, which was, and we talked about this briefly before, but I had one boss my entire sales career before I joined Kleiner Perkins. Yeah. And his name was Jeff St. Clair. And he taught me everything that I know about how to lead. And as I was going through and putting my prep doc together and listening to you on stage, I realized, holy shit, Jeff took all these lessons from you. And all of those lessons have been passed down to me. And so in a really weird way, I found myself writing down phrases that you say that I say, and they're because <laughs> of you. Catching someone, doing something right. I'm like, are you kidding? The amount of times that Jeff St. Clair said that to me, it was just so surreal that in some 
weird world. I'm sitting with you at the Betsy Hotel in a library here, realizing that so much in one way, shape or form, I learned from you. Thank you. And so I'm just really appreciative of that. Thank you. Let me tell you how that particular thing came about. Catch someone doing something right. I remember talking to John Morgridge. Uh, Cisco sits on John Morgridge way. John was my boss in the 80s at Stratus Computer. And then he went on to be the first CEO of Cisco. So he hired John Chambers, turned it over to John Chambers when they hit a billion and he became chairman. And I said to him, did you learn more your style? Because I think he's a fantastic leader by seeing people do it right or wrong. John's like, well, I guess mostly right. How about you? I said, mostly wrong. I had seen people do things that I just drove me crazy, like demean people in public. If you have something to criticize somebody for, do it face-to-face with class privately. You don't do it in public. Things like that, all Mm -hmm. kinds of things. And I always thought that if I ever had the opportunity to set up a culture and be a big part of setting that culture up, that it would be based on looking for the good in each other. Basic belief is if you back people and you give them all the support they could possibly want, you're still going to be demanding. You're still going to shoot for extraordinarily high goals. They'll do almost anything if they feel appreciated and respected. So how do we make that happen? And so our first year at NetApp, we went from zero to 16 million. And then the next year it went to 46 before it exploded. And I could no longer see everybody every day at the beginning. And literally... I was living in Dallas. I would fly to Northern California. I'd be playing ping pong with the engineers from midnight to two. I got to know everybody in that company. And I hired everybody in sales because there was nobody there when I got there. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, how do I make people know we appreciate them if I can't see it every day? And so I brought my leaders in and I said, if you see somebody do something extraordinary to help a customer, to help NetApp, to help society, give me that story and I'll call them every day. And quickly it morphed into, and that, that went, became very, very popular, but quickly it morphed into Juven saying to me, I want to tell you about Jeff. I, I want to tell you about my peer or my boss. It, it wasn't the bosses telling me about all the people. It was the people saying, hey, I just got back from sales training and this person, I'm from Cisco. I don't know anything about storage, but these people in the office spend hours after work to get me up to speed fast. And when I asked why, they said, we're just paying it forward. This is what people did for me when it came in. We had a young lady who did a, a guy called me, said, this is a young lady doing seminars in Houston. I got to tell you this story. First day, I saw her loading the food in the car after the seminar, and I thought she must have a big family. And the second day, she's doing it again. I said to her, really? You need the food two days in a row? And she said, I'm taking it to a homeless shelter. So I called her. I said, this is why we're here. It's good people doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do. And you just want to recognize it. And no one keeps it a secret when they get that call. I had people say to me, you know, it was my goal four years ago to get a call from you. This is, you know. They want to be caught doing something right. Absolutely. I heard you'd make almost 100 calls a week to people on the team. Between that and just reps. Sure. Just calling people. 100 a week. Yeah, you know, Bill McDermott's a good friend of mine. He's the CEO of ServiceNow. He was at SAP CEO. And he called me. There's a book called Contagious Success by Susan Anunzio. She's a PhD professor at the University of Chicago. In about 2005, she wrote the book and she interviewed me. For, and there's a chapter in there. And he read that. And he called me. He said, Tom, how do you find the time? I said, Bill, it averages 10 to 15 calls a day on average. And I said, how long do you think the calls last? He said, I don't know. I said, Bill, I'll call somebody. Joe, and this is Tom Mendoza. Oh, geez. 
They're not thinking this is good. You know, I'm right. calling an engineer. I'm calling some guy in Israel. Right. I'm calling a guy in Australia. And I said, I want you to tell you that somebody you care about in this company took the time to call me to tell me about what you did last night. And I take them through it. I said, I just want to thank you. No, very rarely did a call go over a minute. They were stunned. Sometimes they'd come back and say, can we have another talk? Because I was, so I say to people, what are you doing? Remember, I can do this throughout the day. I'm in my car. I'm, I'm just gonna, on the way to the airport. 10 minutes. What are you doing that you don't have 10 minutes to thank people? It's incredible. There's a fellow who I will introduce you to. He was recruited by Benioff to be employee number 150 at Salesforce as the president and took them to Salesforce. And he was telling me a story, Jim Steele. He was telling me a story about he was at President's Club one year and he was hosting President's Club mm -hmm. and they were in Maui or some island somewhere exotic. And there was 60 people along with their significant others. So 120 people sitting down for dinner. And Jim, for three days, practiced every single person's name mm -hmm. and put it to their face. And when he stood on stage, he went around the room and said, thank you for being here by name to every single person. That's awesome. And it just reminds me so much of these stories that you're telling me going so far above and beyond. When we did club, we always had a golf day. I used to play golf a lot. I don't play anymore really, but I used to play a lot. But I wouldn't do that because, I mean, I wouldn't participate in that particular day. All the employees signed up, but their significant others were by the pool, hanging out or doing whatever. And I took that time so they could get to know me. And I sat down and talked to everybody. So by the time the big dinner happened at the end, we actually knew each other. People say, why don't you? I know you like to play golf. Why don't you play? Well, I know all you people. I want to know the Whenever we went to club, we focused our attention on the spouses because, and not for some sales reason. It's because I truly believe when you were working really hard at all the companies you helped build and the way all the employees work so hard, the other person has so much dumped on them. Mm -hmm. They have kids. They have to take care of all that because the spouse may be traveling or whatever. And I truly wanted to thank them for Without their support, the employee could not do what they do the way they do it. And I got to tell you, so all the gifts went to the spouses. We didn't send gifts to the employees. Whatever we did, you know, robes and all that, it was always aimed at them with a personal note. And so many people have told me to this day, 15, 20 years later, I'll have, you know, my wife and I on Lanai spent that time with you doing this or that. So I really like what Jim did. I think that's fantastic. But it's an extension of caring. My leadership mantra, I didn't come up with it, but I hope I lived it, which is people don't care what you know unless they know that you care. They just don't. So if I'm talking to a group, I'll say, if somebody called you right now that truly you cared about and they cared about you and they say, I desperately need you to leave there right now and help me, you'd leave. This interview would end right now if you got that call. Yep. Well, I believe, so I, I think about my dad. He put so much into bringing me up. He was at every game I ever did. You know, and it was hard on him because he was traveling, but I, I just didn't want to let him down. So the ultimate goal of leadership, in my opinion, is to you put so much into what you do that when you ask back, people do it because they don't want to let you down. They're not afraid of you. They're not intimidated by you. They just don't want to let you down because you've earned that. Is there a time where someone has let you down? And how did you respond to that? 
Yeah, I can think of a couple times someone I worked for let me down and wasn't necessarily aimed at me. I had a CEO one time that, not at NetApp, obviously, but a former company that came to me because they wanted to go public and I was running sales. And they said, look, if you can do X, we're going to reward you with stock. And I said, well, what I would really like to see is you reward the sales leaders with stock. Not not one person. I can't do it. They're the ones who are going to do it. And he said, absolutely. And then we did it and we came through and he took the time to fly to Dallas. And he said to me, I didn't realize how much stock all those guys already had in you. He didn't give it to us. So the way I reacted to that, I said to him, what do you think is going to happen next? I'm interested. Just went public. I'm the head of sales. I said, how do you think this is going to go from here? He said, what do you mean? I said, what do you think I'm going to do? And I don't know what those people do besides be extraordinarily disappointed since you committed it. What do you think is going to happen next? He said, I hope you're going to treat, be very professional. I said, I will be. And I quit. (laughs) And And I quit by walking into his office and he was stunned. And he said, give me one good reason you want to quit. I said, I don't want to work for you. You ever want to leave an office fast? That's a good way to do it. It wasn't no a lot of discussion about kidding. how are we going to keep time. No kidding. No kidding. So there's only a couple of reasons I've ever left jobs. I don't leave for more money. I didn't leave for more title. I don't get recruited. I leave because I feel like the company I'm a part of is no longer shooting for greatness. They've settled and therefore there's no opportunity to, to grow something into greatness and lift everybody. or someone specifically toward the top. You know, a lot of my career, I spent my time buffering from my group from the people above. So I built groups until I got to NetApp. I never had a company I could grow, right? It was a group. My groups always had a great culture. But the companies I worked for in general, I had to buffer my bosses from them because they they truly didn't care about the individual. They only cared about who was making numbers and who wasn't. Mm. And I've always believed there's so much more to sales leadership or company leadership than just who's on numbers. Yeah. I may have given you the wrong number. I may have given you a bigger challenge than I, and I don't have the resources. And someone else has an easy job. It's my job to know that and treat it accordingly. As I, I hadn't expected the question, but most times when I felt people let me down, it wasn't in relation to me. It was in relation to the team I led. Mm-hmm. And that is something I can't put up with. And I have had people that I thought did the wrong thing. And when I confronted them, which I always would, They've reacted appropriately. Mm -hmm. They realized they screwed up Mm -hmm. and they did something about it as Mm -hmm. opposed to, I don't care. Hard to work for someone who doesn't care. Can't coach hard. I have to ask you a question and you got to tell me if this is true or not. Did you play a round of golf with Tiger Woods and Warren Buffett was your caddy? I did. I heard that in passing somewhere. And I was like, (laughs) are you kidding me? If I don't ask, if I don't ask about this story, then this was in the year 2002 and Tiger was on fire. So Ron told me about this charity auction in his backyard. The big prize is going to be a round with Tiger Woods. Private round. He had never done it before. T- Tiger's never done it before. He had never done it with anybody. Yeah. He, he offered this round for whatever you donated was going to go to Battered Women, Ronald McDonald, and Tiger Woods Foundation. They're going to split it equally. So if you're going to give to charity anyway, how cool would it be to do a big event and get something back like that that Absolutely. you have fun with? So Warren Buffett was the speaker because- At the event. At the event mm-hmm. because he's donating it. But he, you know, it was a funny time because in Silicon Valley, 
This is prior to the dot-com bubble. There's probably 500 people in the backyard, 49 cheerleaders, you know, Scott McNeely from Sun, Mark Andrews, and all these guys. So I figured it's going to be a big number. And then, you know, we got down there to Howard, Florida. Picture this. I you brought some buddies. Yeah, I brought the Dan Wormanoven, uh, CEO of NetApp, was a great, great friend, one of my best friends. James Lau, founder of NetApp, and a good friend of mine, Jay Benier, who's a uh, cancer doctor at the time. And we go down there. I'm on the practice range. And two things happen. Warren walked up to me in the cart, and I'm riding a racing, riding a racing. He says, what are you doing? I said, I'm working on my game. <laughs> and then I hadn't hit the ball. <laughs> yes, I, just, I just understood yes, that. Yeah. In fact, I have a picture I could send to you, which Warren put a magazine in my hand. We flew back to Omaha together before we went back home. And he handed me like a Life or Look magazine with him on the cover. And my admin a year later said to me, did you ever notice a note in there to you? And I pulled it out. I said, dear Tom, I've never seen anyone wield a pencil like you. <laughs> Warren S. Buffett. P.S. Tiger agrees. I've got that on my wall. <laughs> I've never seen me wield a pencil. That's how impressive my game was. So on the 18th hole, just to, to wrap this yeah. up, there's a book called Who's Your Caddy? by Rick Riley, who's a famous writer. And it goes through all these famous guys when they're playing with these different caddies and the forwards on our round, on this round. But he doesn't mention me, he doesn't know me. And we both belonged to Bel Air Country Club. So I heard him tell the story and it's funny, but it wasn't accurate. And I said to him, you know, I am that guy. And the way you tell us that, he goes, ah, I don't want to hear because everybody liked the way he told us. Right, 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 right. It's a good story. Yeah, but the story is the following. 18th old Warren turns to me, he goes, Tiger just challenged me for five bucks. He'll play me on his knees. And I never, I remember thinking, you know, it's like somebody challenged you to play pool with a straw. Don't play the guy. He's probably done it before. You know, he's going to get your money. But anyway, so all of us hit the ball. And I would say the best drive was like in the fairway. is like 220 mm -hmm. in the fairway. Mm -hmm. And Warren takes my driver and hits an, what I would call an old man fade. He was 72 at the time. And the ball kind of just goes to the right. And it just misses going in the lake, about 170 yards. Tiger launches about a 260 drive on his knees, did not choke down. On his knees. And the ball had the same exact ball flight as every other shot. Exact. I was like, oh my God. Guess he, he has worked on he it. He hit a 260 off his knees, dead straight. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And the, and the hole was like 430 dog leg right. So on his second shot, this is the part. So Warren takes my seven wood and he kind of hits off the edge of it right into the water. <laughs> And he turns and he looks at Tiger, who's about 50, 60 yards in front of him, 70 yards in front of him, on his knees. And he gives him a, my view is he gave him a, I'm 72, I haven't played all day, how about a mulligan look? And Tiger just shook his head, no, <laughs> I'm getting the five bucks. And he launches, again, not choking down. Try to think about it. He launched it pin high off the left in the rough a little bit. He ended up bogeying the hole, which irritated Tiger, tells you what he was expecting on it. 4.30 uphill hard hole. But as we fly him back to Omaha, Warren called his main partner there. And the guy said, we could hear it on the speaker. And he says, how did it go? He said, on 18, I brought him to his knees. <laughs> 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 Happened to be true. That's how he summed it up. 
What an incredible, awesome experience. What an incredible story. How nervous were you with Warren Buffett and Tiger Woods I on wasn't, hole one? I wasn't. Your you hands know, weren't sweating on hole one. I could play no. a local Muni and I could play with three of my buddies and I'm gonna, I'm worried I'm going to shank it. There was a magazine that did an article. I could send it to you. I'd, I'd find it. Big interview with me before because it was on the cover of USA Today and all that when, when we did it. And he says, how nervous are you going to be? I said, I'm not going to be nervous at all. He said, why? Because I'm spectacularly aware he doesn't care what I shoot. It's irrelevant to Tiger Woods what I do that day. And what I did is I bet against my friends and made sure they were nervous. Right. Oh, my God, right. Tiger's laughing at you. Oh, my God, I can't believe. Don't even look. He's staring at you. So I ended up winning money. What a great <laughs> story. Wow, I'm so glad I asked about that. What a great story. Okay, so can I go back to a few questions that I have on NetApp stuff? And sure. maybe I'll frame the context for, honestly, for the audience that's listening, who may be younger, that doesn't know what this company is and was. Yeah. It's quite incredible what happened right. to this company. Mm-hmm. Like I said in the beginning, 600K when you started. And in fact, and it's funny because the more things change, the more things stay the same. The founders brought you in when they realized that the product won't sell itself. Right. You know, we have names for that now, product-led growth and all these things. It was still the same back then, no different. <laughs> and so they brought you in to get this thing sold, to sell product. And also to help with the culture of the company because they had been at Auspex where I was. Right. And they were the two young geniuses there. They were in the mid-20s when they founded NetApp, both in the Technology Hall of Fame now. They brought me in because they liked the way the sales organization felt, but not the company. Yep. So the conversation was, Tom, we need you to help us build a company. And that's why I was so attracted to it. I had a chance to do on a large scale what I had done for my own groups prior. You basically became a pointed co-founder in some way over time. Eventually they they actually said you and Dan are co-founders, but, oh, good. I, but I didn't care about that. So you started at 600K. The end of that year, which were you were two months into the role, when into the year when you started, you ended the year at 16 million. Is that right? Yeah, to put that in perspective. And that goal was handed to you, by the way. Yeah, they were already on it. It was a going out of business strategy being executed perfectly. I mean, it was just screwed up. <laughs> Here's the metrics. 50,000 was the ASP of the product. And of the 50,000, they were committed to only do channel, no end user sales. That wasn't supposedly something you could talk about. Of the 50, they only got 13. The channel got 37. The channel didn't do anything but deliver the product. You still had to sell it. So try to get to 16 million at 13,000 a pop. But we had three, there were three salespeople. One became an SE. That's how it ended up being two. And so I had to hire a sales team that could get that number done or we're, and because we still had to go raise our series B. We only had a series A. And so the first thing I did was I I realized that because no one knew what we're doing, it was an appliance. It was the first appliance called network appliance was the original name of it. So it's one thing, it's something extraordinarily well. We modeled it after Cisco router. Most people thought you should do a lot of things on any device you have. But Cisco showed the world you need to do one thing extremely well because reliability was so important. We felt data was the same exact thing. It wasn't being done that way. It was being done on a computer with compute, networking, database, all done in one place. So I said, we're going to go direct. First thing I said, if I'm coming in, we're going direct because nobody knows what we're doing here. And we're wasting money. 
We're trying to build a channel. Yeah, we barely even know our own messaging, yes. let alone a channel program being able to help us figure it out. Once you establish pull to help accelerate you, yeah. but they're not there to create a market for you. time, energy, money. So I went to every reseller. I remember a guy in Chicago who said, man, you're the first guy from NetApp I've ever met with a brain. It was a network appliance at the time. We changed the name later to NetApp. So long story short, the ones that were willing to learn and actually help our sales team by adding value stayed. The rest of them, it was just on their line card. And so I had to hire a bunch of people fast. I had to hire, I figured out, I thought the average guy could sell four a month after 60 days. So he just works a myth. That's 200,000 a month, 2.4 million a year. And I just worked a productivity chart along that line. So I, I think I had to hire like, 12 to 14 people is the number. I got a headhunter that I worked with for a long time. I said, I want you to do this for me exclusively. I want you to go to all these cities. I told him exactly where it was. So I'll spend as much time as you want teaching you how to sell my product. But when I get in there, the first person that sits across me that's not qualified, I'm firing you. You get me three people, because I, I don't have any time. I'm going to hire somebody in every city. So you go in before me, you get it to a final three, and I will definitely hire somebody or I'll fire you. And of the, I think the first 12 people we hired, 10 of them lasted at least five years and a number of them 10 years. It made the company that we made the right hires. As you well know, if you get the right people, you can do it. Especially in the beginning. Right. And I didn't go, like I didn't go to New York because we didn't have fault tolerance. We didn't have remote backup. Mm-hmm. I didn't go to what you have to do in the city. If you're For those do, types of customers, right? yep. I didn't go to Washington, D.C. because it takes too long to build a federal program. I needed to get off the ground. I wanted to fish in the right pond. Right. A lot of people do that wrong. They just put people everywhere. Yeah. We were very thoughtful. So we went to 16, 54, 90. Revenue. Yeah, and then it was 94. And we had a saying, double or die. Double or die. And so we went to 150 the next year. External, we were already public and stock was doing well. It was the third best stock. Of the NASDAQ in the 90s, third best performing stock. So, But when it went to 150 and then 250, it felt like a train wreck inside because we weren't doubling. Mm -hmm. And then we went to 500 and a billion in two years. So we became zero to a billion in six years at 60% margin. Let me take that one step further. So you went to that billion dollar number in six years, which is absolutely mind-blowing, even for today. Right. That's insanity. Then- a bunch of stuff ended up happening to the business. The dot-com bubble. The dot-com bubble. <laughs> and can I tell you something that's so weird? And the audience knows, I don't believe in coincidences. I picked up one book that I actually opened in this beautiful library this that we're in. a spectacular okay? library. And it's a Walt Whitman book, okay? I picked up a bunch of books. I only opened one of them. And I start flipping through it, okay? And in the book, there is a sand disc <laughs> ripped up and I was like, you got to be kidding me. This is one of NetApp's, one of NetApp's competitors. And I was like, this is unbelievable. What are the chances? So anyway, I thought that was really random. So can I frame this up? Like sure. where, what happened to this business? And yeah. then I'd love to just get into your head. In September, September 22nd of 2000, my birthday, September 22nd, the stock was at $147. After four two-for-one splits. After four two-for-one splits. public at 12 Four two four and splits to one fifty six is the highest it hit. But go ahead. And by April of two thousand and one, so seven eight months later, the stock was below ten dollars. Six. It was six dollars. <laughs> six dollars. You lost 
97% of your value. And what happened is the tech bubble hit and 70 or more percent of NetApp's business was tech. Tech or just, internet. Tech or internet. And it just evaporated. Exactly. What the hell was going through your head? That's a great question. And actually remember, because you can imagine it was fairly traumatic. Because you couldn't have been riding higher. No. And it, I always thought the dot-com bubble would happen, meaning all these stupid companies would go under that were doing eyeballs and clicks, saying revenue is not important. You don't have to make money. Right. Common sense said, I mean, Don Valentine was our chairman. Don was founder of Sequoia, Sequoia yep. Capital, most famous venture capitalist ever. And Don said to me, he said, I want to share an insight with you, Tom. I said, what's that? He said, we see every business plan. And the vast majority are saying they're going to fund themselves on advertising as the internet changes, right? On the internet. He said, there aren't enough eyeballs in the world. There aren't enough advertising dollars in the world to fund a third of these companies. And they're all basing it on that. It's going to blow. We know it's going to blow. But I thought companies like Cisco, NetApp, Sun Micro, companies that are real companies would prosper from that. I was wrong. <laughs> because if all that stuff goes away, then I thought they would turn. It was a combination of two things. One is you just went through Y2K. And Y2K, for those who don't aren't old enough to remember, the world was told that the whole thing, all the technology is going to get screwed up because the clocks were set a certain way. Once the clock strikes 12 at 2000, 2000. everything was going to go haywire. Our ovens were going to stop working. Right. So the effect of that is companies bought way more infrastructure than they might have as a protection device. Well, it didn't. <laughs> and now they're sitting on a lot of unused stuff that they were going to grow into, which would slow down growth of almost anything, right? Right past that, this happens. And we were 70% tech or internet. So people said, this company's going to die. I mean, that was what everyone said. This company's going to die. I had a guy who was a great search guy in Silicon Valley call me. He said, let me give you an observation. There's only two companies that you cannot take people out of right now. And that's Apple and you. People did not leave us. People did not run which was astounding. They poured out of Cisco. They poured out because a lot of those companies at Cisco had been bought. And it was all based on the stock price. The stock price went through to Florida. They were like, I don't want to work in a big company anymore. So all companies got hurt. We got really hurt. Our revenue went from, a, we thought we did a billion that year. We thought the next year we were going to do 1.5 billion. That's what our expenses were aimed at. And we were very confident. And you hired towards that goal. Yes. And hired ahead yep. and, and it went to 800 million. So going down 20% was not a lot compared to a lot of companies, but to us, it was extraordinarily traumatic. As you're watching the stock go through the floor, the, the combination. So what we did is we got on a plane, me, Dave Hitz was the founder, Dan Warmanhoven and James Lau, the other founder, we split up. And we visited every major office in the world, not every satellite office, but every major office in the world. And I think we did it within a two-week period. How many were there? How many offices? 50. All over the world, though. We had opened virtually, you know, yeah. every Asian country. But we wanted to look people in the eye as opposed to put out some generic message and tell them. And, and what was clear is they knew the company was in trouble. They could read the papers, not just NetApp. The whole industry was in trouble. And so they knew we were going to have to take an action. And that's what we told them. Somebody said, are you, 
are we going to do a layoff? And Dan said, we will never lose money. And if we're going to lose money, we're going to right size because we have to make this company something we can build on for the long term so everyone can prosper. Otherwise, we won't have anything to build on. We didn't dodge any of the questions. We didn't have all the answers. A lot of companies go quiet. They wait until they have all the answers and they put out an email or they do a one-sided video. And then I saw read the other day, some guy laid off 900 people on a Zoom Zoom, call, right? We went and talked to people and let them unload on us and talk to us in Japan and China. I remember I, I had Asia. But the net of it is, we ended up doing our first layoff. I think we did a layoff. I want to say it was 8%. And we we wanted to do it big enough that we were pretty certain we wouldn't have to do it again for a long time because we took a very conservative view of our revenues and said, what would it take? We could have gone less. I remember mm-hmm. Sun Micro chose the death of a thousand cuts. They kept saying, we don't do layoffs. Terrible. And they just let everybody go, let everybody go. And I had people say to me, Juven, years later, many people came back to NetApp, which is today a $6 billion company, as you know. But it, it, as an aside, it took two years to get back to a billion, about another two years to get to two billion, and then we made it to six billion by 2012. So, but I had many people come up to me and say, I'll never forget the respect you treated everybody with. We put a war room together before we announced the layoff. And we knew everybody's names were on board who was going to be affected. We, we went and talked to them personally about, we made a point to the company that this isn't about performance. We cannot afford the amount of people we have now. If it was a performance issue, we would have already taken care of it. This is about good people are going to have to not be working here anymore. We treated them financially at the high end of what everyone suggested. And number two, we were aggressive with references to help them get other jobs. And many people came back. But the amazing thing was they understood. It wasn't yep. like, why? Because we had taken the time. And we fought back. And, you know, and so we entered the great places to work in 2003. Now, tough time to enter. How do you feel about this company? Mm-hmm. It was a year after this happened. And we entered it in the U.S. first because we wanted to hear from them, if we did what, could we do better? And we were ranked the 43rd best company in America to work for that year. We were actually stunned. I didn't expect to be on a top list of anything. Long story short, we were ranked in the top 10, 12 years in a row. We ranked number one in 2009, best company to work for in America. And we were the best company to work for in 10 other countries. We made the top 10 in almost everywhere we worked. And that was our goal. We don't want to be a great company for Silicon Valley. We don't even want to be a great American company. We want to be a great company everywhere we do business in the world from their perspective. What does that take? And that's how we talked and that's how we felt. What was going through your head during that time? Someone that cares so deeply about the company, the mission, the employees, the customers. How hard was that? Like how many sleepless nights did you have? I don't know. Just trying to get in your head during that time. I just can't imagine. This was your baby. Yeah, it was. And I remember Dave hits crying and Dave is not a guy who cries. Uh, the founder of NetApp, it really hurt him to talk about a layoff. And I was one of the people who said, Dave, we don't have a choice. If we don't do this, if we don't do this, we won't have a company in a year. That's killing the baby. So, you know, there are things you have to do in life. When life takes a really bad turn, if you don't address it and you don't change the way you live, you're going to get a whole terrible result. So you got to. 
So that's when we came up with, we have got to take personal responsibility for delivering this message, making sure it comes out as well as possible, and then bringing this company back. Side story, I almost retired from that up in 1999. I'm not sure I've ever told the story publicly. And I went to Dan and we had an agreement that we'd give each other six months notice that that was going to happen. Because Dan joined in December of 1994. We're like brothers. And he's like, oh, my God. He said to me later, it's like you're finding out your brother has cancer. You, you know, you know it could happen, but you don't want. And I, the reason was I thought things were getting too easy at NetApp. And I didn't want to be a block for other people moving up in their career, number one. Number two, I love startups. I thought maybe I should go do another and do it again. He said, Don Valentine wants to meet with you. I went and saw him. He said, look, we definitely don't want to lose you. But if you decide to leave, I want you to be in a Sequoia company. Mm -hmm. we got plenty of things that we could do. And so I took two weeks off, maybe it was a month. I went to Palm Desert, California, where I had a place. And I just golfed and I didn't grind on it. And a couple observations hit me. Number one, everybody I met who had retired fairly young ended up going back to work because they just, it wasn't enough. Whatever they thought it was going to satisfy, golf and doing all this stuff. So I note to self, you're not that different than everybody else, mm -hmm. right? My alternatives were stay at NetApp, be a screw off, which, you know, I used to love, I love to have fun. So I thought I could screw off and have fun or do another startup. Well, that knocked the screw off one out of the box when I saw no one else. Eliminated it. Who tried it. Yeah. Thought it was a good idea. Yeah. So then I didn't grind on it. And the last day before I went back, I asked myself one simple question. When I get in the car tomorrow and I turn the car keys, do I want to aim towards Sand Hill Road? Or do I want to go to NetApp? And I said, you know what? I love NetApp. And I stayed and Don Valentine called me in and he said, let me share a conversation we've had since you were gone. Must have been a month. He has Dan, Dave, Dave and James are the two founders and our CFO, Jeff Allen. Do you want more or less? More or less to do in this company. And Jeff Allen was first. He was the CFO and head of operations. He said, less. He said, what do you want less of? He said, legal. It drives me crazy. He, he was even thinking of leaving the company because when the stock was way up, a lot of executives leave, right? We're yeah. at peak. And he said, why don't you just hire the best attorney in Silicon Valley and get off your... He said, we don't pay that. He said, you're telling me we're not going to pay what we need to pay so, as we'll lose you? Pay the guy. So we ended up getting a good attorney and that stopped. Then he asked James Lau, and James had recently got divorced. He wanted to spend more time with his kids, going to China a lot. And he was running engineering, a big chunk of engineering. And he was chief technology guy. And he said, James, what do you want? He said, I want less. He said, why don't you just become a CTO or strategy, not operational? He goes, I can do that? Yeah. His goal was to keep the team together. He felt we had an unbelievable team but any one thing going could fracture that. Mm -hmm. And I'm the wild card. And then he asked Dave Hitz and Dave said, I want more. He's like, more of what? Dave was the brilliant startup guy. He did the technology. He created the technology. He said, I'd like to run engineering. He said, you would? And Don said to me, what do you think of Dave running engineering? I said, let me talk to Dave first. And Dave said, it seems to me that we have great managers in engineering, but too many things get shot down because I don't think so. I don't think so. So if I think it's a good idea, I believe everyone will sign up and then we could execute. I'll still need the great managers. I thought Dave did a fabulous job for two years. 
And he wanted to be more operational to see if he ever wanted to be CEO, to see if he liked that part of it. And then the final one was Dan Wormanoven, CEO. And he asked him as a courtesy, and Dan said, I want less. He says, you're CEO. What do you want less of? Yeah. He said, well, I'm handling Wall Street. I'm handling, you know, he had engineering reporting to him. I used to have sales service and, and marketing, everything facing the customer, basically. But he also was doing the speaking and things like that. So Don says to me, so Tom, now that you're back, you don't have a choice. I'm making you president tomorrow, and you are the face of the company, period. Dan's out of that. You're the guy that drives this company externally. And I was like, okay. It wasn't a thought in my head one way or the other. The biggest difference between being president and being worldwide head of sales was that when I said something, we didn't have any more meetings. <laughs> Prior to that, <laughs> I had a firm opinion. Once I was president, it wasn't my opinion anymore. Okay, we're going that way. We're going that way. So that's how I ended up staying. And that team stayed together till mid-2012 to 15. And so you have this moment in 99 where things are going incredibly. You're tempted to leave because of how easy things are and how right. much success the business is having. Exactly. And you want to go back to feeling a little bit of that grind. That's what made me think of that story. When it went to hell, I wasn't intimidated. I wasn't feeling terrible. You wanted more of that. You want I thought that it wasn't our fault. We have a great business. Yeah. Something externally has happened and we've got to just do our thing and we'll bring ourselves back. And I saw everyone was in. Everyone was in to do it. There's no way I would have left then. Right. Because they needed me. But the first time I was just thinking, not that I wasn't making a lot of contributions, but I thought someone else could do it too. Between 2006 and 2011, the company grew from $2 billion to $6 billion of revenue. There was only five companies of this size that grew as fast or faster. They were Amazon, Apple, Google, eBay, Huawei. Today, the company's $20 billion market cap, $90 plus stock price, absolutely incredible. Just incredible. You started a program at NetApp, or maybe a program was started that I'm sure you contributed to that blew my mind, which was employees have their paid time off. Yes. And in addition to that, no oversight, you just say, I want to take one more week for charity. And no questions asked, the company would say yes. So you could take an additional week of PTO. Paid, yeah. Paid to just go give back. That's right. What inspired that? We actually did that in the late 90s. I obviously was part of that decision. I wouldn't say, since everybody loves it, I'll take credit. But I mean, it, it was, <laughs> you know, it wasn't like people were pushing back. We had people coming forward with all kinds of things that companies should support financially. A heart walk, cancer, things that touch them deeply. And you get it. You don't want to say no to anything, right? But in the meeting, we say, why don't we just let them decide? If they're passionate enough about something, let's support it. And it got overwhelming support. We're like, yeah, let's do that. So, and it's still there, which I'm very happy about. You never know. Some companies will do things for a certain time. Think about when we ran into all the problems. And we, and we went through problems again in the 2012 to 2015 range and then fought our way back out of that again. But that program has never gone away. And I could tell you that, so it, it's, you determine, as you said, anything you want. I remember 
when Haiti had the earthquakes, people went. There were tornadoes that blew through Alabama and the Atlanta offices, a group went over and one of the guys, had, his grandfather had a farm there to help rebuild it. The Minnesota team did that in Iowa when they got blown down by tornadoes. They had relatives there or something. The entire organization went. Make-A-Wish is something a lot of people supported. Where you build the houses for people, Jimmy Carter's thing. Yep. I can't think of the name. But all I asked people to do was document it and tell me what it meant to them and their family or them and their coworkers. A lot of them do with their families, but oftentimes it was a couple sets of employees would do it, whatever it was together. And the stories that came back made you proud that you were part of that decision. I mean. Wow. Reminds me of the letters that you asked people to send you on behalf of, of your father. Yeah. Yeah. I, simple thought is you know, we're not going to eventually be judged on what you make or take. You're going to be judged on what you give back and what kind of impression did you make on the world? And if we're starting a company where we have that as an ideal, Let's live up to it. Can you talk to me about your perceived value of sustaining a sense of urgency? Yeah, that came from John Cotter. John's the number one published Harvard Business School professor on change. And so I came across John in about 2005 or six, Rob Salmon and I, who succeeded me as president. At that time, he was running sales. And we met with John and John had a book, My Iceberg is Melting. And we ended up using it in offsite, which basically you have these penguins on a, a big iceberg and the younger penguins are diving in the ocean. The older penguins go, what are you doing that for? There's sharks in that ocean. And one of them came back and he said, this iceberg is melting. And they're like, can't see it. Can't. And he was right. And so the personalities that come out of the different penguins about people who want to stifle anything, people don't want to hear the truth, people, and those who say, wait a minute, we should go investigate. We use that as a culture book in about 2005 or six. And we ended up hiring John and he said, Southwest Airlines and NetApp were the only two to hire him when they were winning because we were on the way back at that point. 2006 to 12 was the, the bring back. It was 2006. And John came in and he, he taught us a lot. So he has a book called A Sense of Urgency. I spoke with him about before he wrote that book. Or no, maybe it was after because he said the one thing he would have done differently in that book, I think he said 90%, then he lowered it to 80% because he didn't want to scare everybody. But 80% of all companies that set out to change fail. So how do you know they failed? Ask the employees. Did that work? No. Okay, that's a failure. So he said, why is that? It's because they can't sustain a sense of urgency. And if you think about it, if somebody told you right now you had a heart problem and if you don't do something different, you're going to have a catastrophic outcome. They have your full attention and you are definitely going to do something. Fast forward four or five months, you're feeling a lot better. Maybe you keep to that program, maybe you don't. If a company's really, really in trouble, which is typically when you say we need a sense of urgency, you certainly should say that, like when we went through what we did. But most sense of urgency is built around the burning platform. If we don't do this, we're screwed. If we don't do this, we're going to die. And again, if that's true, you should say it and we got to get through it. But that is not a sustainable way of getting people to get out of bed excited. So what is the alternative? This is what John said to me on the phone. It wasn't in the book. He said, I wish I'd put this in there. It's 
what's the big opportunity? So certainly you can have a burning platform at certain times, but if we go through all this change, if we go through this hell, what's on the other side? And that's what we did right during the dot-com bubble. We said, we believe we're going to come out of this. Let me tell you why. Dave Hitz did a seminal piece of work. They, they've used it at Stanford in some of the classes. He wrote a future history. And the future history, we were 1 billion. And it said 18% of companies that infrastructure, they get from 1 billion, make it to three. 18%. That's not good. 58% that get to three, make it to five. So there's a window that if you get on the other side, now you're one of the big dogs. Now you're always in the top two to three. So boom. So we concluded we had to get to three billion. We're at one. This is when we fought back from the 800 to a billion. Now we're back. This is when he did it. So like 2002. And he said, okay, to get to three. Now let's say we are three billion. What would have had to have happened? First he took, oh, what percentage of the network attached storage market would we have? What percentage of the sand market? What percentage of back up and recover. What are the markets we play in? What percentage will we have to have to be 3 billion? And interestingly, they look realistic. The second thing is, okay, he took sales and engineering. We're now 3 billion. How many people will we have in New York? How many people we have here? How many people we have there? Then he said, what percentage of our business should be channel at 3 billion? What will we've had to accomplish? What percentage will be our top 100 accounts? What skill sets would we have had to bring into the company? And we realized we were hiring for what we had just gone through, not where we were going to go. And we published that throughout the company. Every single employee got to read it. And it laid out a roadmap that people felt was realistic, even though we'd just come through two years of hell, that we could grow to 3 billion. And we did. And we followed through on that roadmap. It's a very interesting way of looking at it. It reminds me of what Amazon does, which is that when you're a product manager and you want to bring a new product on board, you write a memo and the title of it is, what's your press release? Like when it's going oh, into the cool. wild, that's cool. what, do you, what do you want the press release to say? And then work backwards from there. Yep. It's amazing. You know, George Corian is the CEO of NetApp now, and he was a product manager at one point in his life at Cisco, as was Jay Shri Ulal of Arista, the CEO of Arista. And both of them told me that the way they did it that was different than most is they understood they had to sell the sales force on selling their product. It wasn't like, you better do this. That doesn't work with salespeople. Why is it in your interest to sell my product? And they had to market to their own team as much as they do the external market. And when people want to sell something, it takes off with velocity. People feel forced to sell something it never does. You've said that in business and life, you find out you have a friend when you have a problem. And when I heard you say it, the question that came to my mind was, when has Tom needed a friend? Let me finish that quote, though. Please. You find out if you got a friend in life when you have a problem. And unfortunately, in business and in your personal life, almost everybody's had the experience where people you expect to step up don't. People you never thought would do. Your relationship changes forever with both sides. So you think back to a big problem you've had and maybe you went to somebody for help. Some people will come through and others will disappoint. And have you experienced that? I have. Yeah. When the dot-com bubble happened, there was a lot of things that were very problematic. One case, I let my expenses get ahead of me thinking I had that money and I didn't. And I'll never forget going to talk to Dan Worman over and about it. 
and I wasn't asking him for anything, but he said, if you need anything, I'm going to take care of it. Personally, I'm going to take care of it. Never had came to that, didn't have to do it. But I'll never forget the fact that he said that to me and meant it. Now, I can tell you in other times, so I went to Stanford in 89 for the Stanford Executive Program, and I got a new boss right before that. Guy had never sold in his life, came out of manufacturing. But we needed a VP of sales, long story short. And I met this guy and he said to me, I'm not sure about you. You're too much of a sales guy. I'm looking at him like, I run sales. I ran half the, <laughs> half the company sales, half the U.S. And the guy who they put in the East came out of marketing. And this guy, he said, he's got much better slides than you have. That's what he said to me. I said, he has much better slides than I have. That's really what we're going to go down. And so I, I had been in the company eight and a half years. And I was pretty certain I didn't want to stay in the company. I went and saw the CEO who I was close to. And I said, look, I think it's time for me to go. He's like, why do you say that? I said, you're not as involved as you used to be at all. The people that you're putting in, I don't respect. I don't think our company's going to do well. They got bought out for not a lot of money three years later after being very, very successful. And I said, so I, I just don't want to be a problem. And he said to me, well, you had put on your reviews that you want to go to either Harvard or Stanford for their executive six-week program because I just thought that would be a good thing to do because you, you're in with a lot of non-tech people and you get rounded out, I thought. So he said, why don't you do that? I hear what you're saying. I'm going to make significant changes. When you get out, if you feel like I've done the right things and you want to be a part of it, I'd love to have you stay. So I go to Stanford and you're not allowed to stay in your job when you do that. And I'm getting calls from people who work for me, man, this guy's saying negative things about you. This guy was just coming in. He's, he's like, oh, I'm uncovering all kinds of stuff, which is all ridiculous. He was setting it up, right? And I was super popular in the company. So he had to set it up like I was over my head type thing. And so I come out of there and I didn't feel one moment of tension because I didn't care. if It was either going to get a lot better or I don't want to be a part of it. I get out and I went and saw the CFO of the company who was a good friend. And I could tell he was influenced by this guy because he's saying, I understand there's some issues in this and issues in that. I said, you understand that? Yeah. I said, you, you, so you're not asking me a question. You're understanding something you don't know anything about. Is that really what's going on? And he said, well, I'm just telling you, I'm hearing, I'm hearing. I said, I know what you're hearing. So this guy comes in, who's my new boss. And he started to pontificate about something. I said, let me make this simple for you. I'm leaving. And he was terrified because I was close to the CEO. And that really was his only concern that I could screw up his life. Nothing to do with the business. And he said, well, we'll have to negotiate a package. I said, whatever you give for the amount of time, I've been here eight and a half years. I wanted a guy, whatever that is for everybody else, give me that in amount. I want to leave now. I thought he was going to throw a party. He was very, very excited. Best thing I ever did. He said, do you have a job? I said, no, I didn't have a job before I had this job. I just don't want to work for you. Same thing I told the, the CEO of the other company. I said, you clearly don't want me on your team. That CFO told me many years later, that's one of the reasons he thought the company failed. That guy, within six months, tried to go to the board to get the CEO fired. Wow. He was trying to, right? But my point was, at that time, people around me that I knew real well, a number of them drifted, even though they knew me, started to listen to stuff that was stupid. So I didn't try and convince him I was right or wrong. And I had other people say to me, I know what he's saying is ridiculous. It was things like, you know, I'm not close enough to the business. I was closer than anybody else. It was just inherently false. 
But if you're not in the room and the discussion's happening, people could sell anybody anything. And so I knew a number of the people who came with me to my next couple companies that knew what I was right. And the other people no longer mattered to me. Wow. So I always believe you find out if you got a friend when you got a problem. Everybody's on your side when you're winning. Go back to that dot-com bubble. I found out I had tons of friends. I honestly didn't have anybody react poorly. Some people said I got to leave for my own family. That's fine. That's not it. But I'm talking about when you really need help, who steps up? And by the way, I thought our culture should be, because our customers who have all their data on us, they got to believe that if they ever have a problem, we will be there. That's the number one thing that has to happen to build a company is you got to have trust. And you've been a lifelong startup guy. You know the number one thing at the beginning of a company is that customer has to trust your word. That's all you have. And if you say we're going to do it, I don't care if it costs us money and we screwed up and we said the wrong thing. We got to do it. Look, I'll do it as long as it's not painful to me type company. <laughs> it's, not, totally. it's not somebody I want to do business with. Totally. One of the other things that you've said that I found really profound is, especially right now in this current environment and current environment being we're at the end of the year of 2021. And hopefully someone can listen back to this in 10 years and, and laugh. But right now, companies look really good. Startups look really good. There is a lot of capital flowing. Right. And the world has gone forward five years digitally in the span of one from COVID. And so things are, there's a tailwind happening to these types of venture-backed businesses. I mean, I can speak for the Kleiner portfolio. It looks pretty amazing right now. Right. Can you talk about when the times were good for you, injecting tension? What does that mean? I learned this from Don Valentine. Who's a legend. Yes. And we think the world of him. And Don's very tough and known to be tough. I raised the Series B for NetApp with Don Valentine. And so he invests. So my job when I joined NetApp was to get the revenue so that we could get the right CEO. We had three founders. One was CEO, but they all agreed he shouldn't be. Somebody had to be to get the right investor to come in to hire the right CEO. That was the challenge. So Don came in very, very late in the process. John Mortgage actually called me when he was CEO of Cisco and said, Don has never asked me for this kind of call. He wants to meet with you tomorrow. I actually said, I'm not sure that's a great idea because we were very close to closing the round and we were almost out of money. And I'm thinking, if Don Valentine comes in who's chairman of the board of Cisco, we're telling everybody we're going to do the storage what Cisco did to networking. If he comes in and says, I don't see it, <laughs> that might spook everybody. Yeah. Shot, yeah. And if he's interested, he's going to want to delay. And now we got a real problem. Because the company was going to run out of money. Going to run out of money. So long story short, he asked me to come back and see him. And we had a very blunt conversation. And the other third founder said, well, let me do all the talking in the meeting. I walk in, I go, before we start, you <laughs> <laughs> guys look at me because I'm like, wait a minute. That guy was not the guy you wanted to speak. And I said, I don't think we should have this meeting. And 11 Sequoia partners went dead silent. Like if you ask them, what's the square root of two? Everybody's done. <laughs> Looks so engrossed in something. And there's Don just looking me right in the eye. 12 partners together. We had to make a decision by noon the next day. That's what we told him. And he looks at me, he goes, interesting way to start. Why would you think that's a good idea? 
And I said, because I believe you're going to get very interested in what we have to say. In fact, I think you really, really want to get involved. Problem is we don't have time for you. You haven't done any due diligence. We're going to close around tomorrow at noon. Bad idea. I don't want to get you irritated. Why don't we just call it a day and say the timing didn't work? And that's exactly how the room went dead silent. Don looking at me and he goes, we understand the ground rules. Proceed. Okay. So a guy named Mike was our CEO, bored the hell out of everybody talking about how the operating system worked and stuff. And then Don, right, at the end said to me, let me ask you a question. Do you think you can beat Auspex, which is the company I just come from? That's where Dave and James came from, the founders of NetApp. I said, do you want the long answer or the short answer? He goes, short answer, of course. I said, I left there to come here. I must. <laughs> so a guy named Michael, I can't think of his last name. He's a legend at Sequoia. Gave Mike Moritz. Mike Moritz. Mike was first two investments for Mike Moritz with NetApp and Yahoo. So Mike drives me to the airport. And he's a legend, as you well know. He gave $180 million or something to Oxford after that. But anyway, he drives me to the airport. And I lived in Dallas, Texas, and I get home. And this is in the days where you had a blinking light on your phone. I walk in my bedroom, and there's a blinking light on. Hello, Tom. He was British. I hope this isn't an inconvenience, but Don would like you to come back tonight. He wants to meet with you tomorrow at 8.30. You're back in Dallas. I'm in Dallas. You just left. How is it not an inconvenience? <laughs> <laughs> we didn't have cell phones then. He knows I just got that message. I'm like... Oh, man, because when I told John Mortgage, I didn't think we should have the meeting. He said, unless you want to move to the East Coast, you can't call Don Valentine and say you're not going to go. This is first, the first time. So I reflected on that. I still didn't want to live on the East Coast at that point. So I, You I went flew, the first time. I, I flew back that night. Next morning, I show up at Sequoia. Door open, same door. It's just done. And he says, given your time frame, which is noon that day, it's best for both of us if you're very Blunt is how he put it. I said, Don, I got lots of problems. That's not one of them. <laughs> We're good here. What do you need to know? And we went through every employee, who he should keep. Oh, it was just blunt. And then what we said to him, and this is on the advice of John Morgridge, that if he does want the investment, he has to become chairman. Because if he's chairman, we'd be made. He'd put together the best board. So actually, when he did that, we were on the cover. He could kind of godfather oh, all, all, the, all the strings. And just for context, how far into that run from 600K to 16 million were you in that? This like, where September. were September. No, I joined in May. This is September. We but were, you could tell. You could tell the company was oh, we roaring. We did $4 million my second month. You see, so you could tell the company was about to start roaring. Well, we had some proof points. That, yeah, you know, right. that they yep. had done 600 grand in two months, and we yep. did $4 million in two. And yep. Don being the chairman of Cisco believed in what we said that we could do. So, so long story short, he joins the board. And he's the chairman and he becomes the chairman. The chairman. He's chairman. And he hired Dan Wormenhoven in November. And now you fast forward and Don said to me, look, don't come to any more board meetings. At that point we had one a month. I they doing a lot of startups. I had to keep flying back. He said, I'd rather you just stay on the road. If you're willing to do it, just stay on the road. I like what you're doing. Great. So now you can fast forward and we kill that. Yeah, but not only is 16 million a year, we're on the way to 40 and it's clearly flying. And I get a phone call. I'm in New York and they said, Don wants you to come to the next board meeting. I'm like, oh yeah. I'm thinking, you know, like palm leaves and this is going to be unbelievable. <laughs> Look at that. This is going to be the meeting I don't want to miss. 
And we go walking in and the CFO hands me a slide. He says, here, Don likes to start with this slide. And I go, okay, I don't even look at it. I put it down. I only had one slide. My goal was like this line and way above that goal was performance. Any questions? That kind of thing. And I just honestly thought it was going to be one of those, thank God you're here type moments for these guys. And, and I said, well, as you can see, we're doing well. And I went to move that slide away. He goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. Before we go any further, he says, what's in that category there, deferred revenue? I go, well, I don't know. It wasn't something I was focused on. He did that like four or five times. And each time I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. He goes, do you always often put a slide up? You don't know what you're talking about? I'm like, I'm looking at the guy who gave me the slide. He's not helping me. He's looking. I'm like, what in the heck is that? So 20 minutes in of a proctology exam, he goes, well, we're out of time. And I look at him and I put down the other slide. So, well, apparently you don't care. Well, we're killing it. And I walked out and I am really, really upset. Doug Leone, who now runs Sequoia Capital, was in the room. And he comes running out. Remember, this is 1994. Doug was a young guy at Sequoia. He now runs Sequoia. He comes running out. He goes, Tom, you didn't like that, did you? I said, oh, boy, Doug, that Stanford education wasn't wasted on you. Wow. What an insightful comment. And he said, well, what, what do you think Don was doing there? I said, no idea what Don was doing there. He said, well, when Don first joined the board, how was it going here? He said, it wasn't going well. Right. Yeah. There are a lot of problems. Right? Oh, yeah. We had an accountant who couldn't count. We didn't know where the machines were until someone called it was broken. The systems part of the company is completely broken. He goes, how did Don treat you during that time? I said, it was incredibly supportive. That's right. How you doing now? I said, Doug, we're killing it. He said, Don knows that. He read the board deck. Let me help you. Don believes the number one killer of companies is complacency. And so what I took from that, and I, it literally became my main way of leading was, when times are tough, I am always supportive. As long as you're doing the right things, I always want to find out if you're doing the right things, what can I do to help? But when times are good, I inject tension. There's a guy named Mike Bush. He's still at NetApp. He's a senior exec. He had sold Apple like $10 million. It was just when we started to take off with Apple at the time in the 90s. And I called him and, and thanked him and told him. Next day, I run into him in the cafeteria. He goes, how about that order at Apple? I said, what are you, a historian? I mean, Jesus, we talked about this yesterday. And then he goes, <laughs> and then I said, hey, Mike. I called him one time. I said, Mike, you're 160% of the year. He says, yeah, I know. I said, why do you think you didn't hit 200? He's like, what? I said, I'm, I'm just an honest question. I'm looking and you slowed down in September. Your last four months were nowhere near it. You could have been 200. And he thought of it. He came and saw me. He said, I should have been 200. I said, Mike, I'm not being hard on you, but we got to go for everything. You can't slow down. So you inject some tension. Bill Belichick never lets guys get comfortable when they're winning. And I would tell you that most people do it exactly the other way. When times are tough, they inject tension. And when times are good, they love you. Times are good, they love you, doesn't motivate you. I have a, a, one last thought. It's on inspiration. I think it's offered the most when it's needed the least. It's offered the least when it's needed the most. When you're winning, if nobody calls you, that's crummy. But everybody's, oh, great job, great job. That's not inspiration. When you're hurting, when you're off of goal, something's wrong. Maybe you got health problems. Maybe your family's got health problems. That's when you need someone to care enough to say, I got you. I'm with you. That's inspiration. That's unbelievable. I could keep going for hours. All right. I wrap all of these the same exact way with one question. 
What does the word grit mean to you? First of all, I think it's the most underused word and most powerful word for when you're hiring somebody. I don't look for people whose resume said, because a lot of people at one point in their life may have been great for a job, but maybe they're not now. I look for people that over and over and over again, no matter the circumstances, find a way to win. Find a way, a legitimately classy way to win. So oftentimes in an interview, Juven, I would say to somebody, tell me about your biggest failure and why it happened. And the only thing I care about is do they take responsibility? I screwed up. That's a great answer. But if they go, you know, the company was screwed up. My boss was screwed up. I won't hire them. That's why I like people who wrestled. I wrestled. I like people who play gritty sports, lacrosse. You know, if you're going to be on that field, you're in a wrestling ring, there's no help. You really got to, especially at a fairly high level, you look around, you're wrestling somebody who's pretty tough and, and there's no escape. You got to find a way. So I think grit is the quality that says, don't hand me anything. I'll earn it all, but I am going to earn it and I'm going to win. I'm going to find a way and I'm going to win. They could run through a wall. Tom Mendoza, thank you. Thank you. Philbin, thank you very much for inviting me. That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Thanks. Talk soon.